Hello everybody and welcome to the first 2023 episode of the Enterprising Gen Z podcast. I know it's been a very long time since we last released an episode, but there's been a good reason behind it. I launched a new business, well not launched a new business, I rebranded a previous business that I had, um, which was previously called Enterprising Gen Z Consulting. I never really spoke about it on here. We're a consultancy agency which basically help companies attract uh, Gen Z consumers through uh, new marketing and sales strategies. Anyway, so we rebranded to the agency, um, basically spelled agency with Gen Z in the middle um the name is quite clever i'm I'm quite proud of it um but anyway so it took up so much of our time and then since we rebranded we had so much demand that i just wasn't able to put up podcast episodes um but now i've kind of got everything under control we've built up the team we've hired some more people to kind of manage the workload um so yeah i kind of uh, all back into podcasting now i'm really really excited to bring this brand new episode once again so sorry for the long long wait um but yeah now this episode is about a slightly different topic i mean we speak to lots of entrepreneurs in the personal branding space tech space that kind of thing but for the first time ever we're talking to somebody in the medical space and i'm really really excited to present to you this chat with Anne griffin who's revolutionizing the american healthcare system now as a brit um i know the flaws in the american healthcare system that's not to say there's not flaws in the british healthcare system but you know the american healthcare system and its problems is often widely publicized um so we go into chats about you know what the issues are and what's the issues with capitalism um in, in medical care now Anne is the founder of Symptom Evo. Now, Symptom Evo is revolutionising the way that Americans are are getting their healthcare. Really, this is probably one of the most interesting chats we've ever had on the podcast, um, and it's it's something totally different, um, something completely different to the, to the to the entrepreneurs we've we've covered before. But I'm so excited to share it with you. And uh, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hey, Anne, how's it going? That's going awesome. How are you, Sam? Thanks for having me. Absolutely no worries. It's a pleasure to talk to you. We're kind of going to be talking about a subject which we haven't really touched on before. Um, but before we go into all of that stuff, which you've got planned later on for the episode, do you want to just tell everybody kind of who you are and what you do? Yeah, um, my name's Ann Griffin, and I am the founder and developer of a technique system called Symptom Evolution. And it's a very innovative, um, game-changing, industry-disrupting um, way to... Uh, not just take a history when somebody comes in for neck pain, knee pain, back pain, vertigo, migraine, whatever they're presenting with, um, a completely different way to understand the body, injury history, et cetera, so that um, uh, we get faster results in less time. A typical course of care in um, what we'll say physical or manual medicine would be somewhere between 10, 16 visits or more. And we aim to fully resolve even very complex cases in two to four visits and the issues don't return. Awesome. So you're obviously kind of disrupting the medical care system, not only mm-hmm. in America, but across the world, but obviously you're based in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is kind of an awkward question to ask. But in Europe, um, the medical healthcare system in the States is really frowned down upon, um, especially the way it's kind of turned into some sort of capitalist regime, if you know what I'm trying to get at. Mm-hmm. And oddly enough, you've been quite critical based on the chats we've had before this of the American healthcare system as well. Um, I just like to ask you the question, I mean, what do you think is wrong with the healthcare system in the States? Well, I think it might really surprise you that um, both for, because at the end of the day, healthcare delivery, it's a service. There's a customer service aspect. And so the way that um, the healthcare uh, system works in the United States, because it is a for-profit system, Every single practitioner, and it doesn't matter what your flavor is, physical therapy, orthopedic surgeon, neurologist, oncologist, whatever your flavor of healthcare practitioner, this might surprise um, uh, 
what we'll say consumers or patients, we all get into this field because we care and we want to make a difference. And so when you call a plumber to unclog your toilet and the plumber is ineffective in clogging your toilet and then charges you anyway, that's a really sour customer service experience. But what um, uh, patients may not realize is that on the practitioner end, we're also having a sour experience that we get really frustrated and disappointed too when our patients come back and say, doc, it's not any different. It's not any better. Um, but instead of uh, incentivizing um, efficiency in our healthcare system, we, in, we don't incentivize quality of care. We incentivize quantity of care. And this is not a personal opinion that I have. This is borne out by the simple fact that we spend as a developed nation, probably the most amount of money on healthcare, but we do don't get the best outcomes. We're somewhere in the middle of the road with our birth rates, our mortality rates, so on and so forth. And while the reasons for that are multifold, that's not the purpose of our discussion today. I just want to share hearts with not only patients who are frustrated, the practitioners are frustrated too. This isn't really working for anyone. And um, while we're not here to solve all of the world's ills, I think a really good starting point is just to acknowledge as a collective culture that um, we're all sharing the same frustrations, but we're unsure of how to remedy this. And that's where symptom evolution really got started. Uh, yeah, I completely agree with everything you've said there. Um, so, I mean, you obviously had a, you did a medical degree um, and, you know, full of, you know, extremely well-educated. Um, that degree, obviously, in America doesn't come cheaply. And obviously, you know, to get into the medical field, you kind of need that kind of experience, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, from your medical degree, and I guess from what is wildly taught, or not wildly taught, but taught on the whole in the States, what does symptom evolution do differently when it comes to medical care? Great question. So just so I'm not um, uh, uh, jumping, so no one has any uh, illusions about my actual qualifications. I am a manual therapist. My technical schooling or my education was um, in the field of chiropractic care. So I'm not a medical doctor. Think about optometry, right? A doctor of optometry is not a medical practitioner. They can't treat everything. They're just very specialized with eye care. I'm very specialized with body care. So I just want to throw that out there um, right out the gate. Um, I've had seven years post-education. So education-wise, my schooling is equivalent probably to a master's level. The work that I do or the work that I've developed with symptom evolution has nothing to do with traditional chiropractic care whatsoever. That's where I got a really strong foundation, anatomy, pathology, you know, all the basics, chemistry, you know, microbiology, just like all other flavors of healthcare practitioners. So the huge, the gaping chasm is harnessing or utilizing the most powerful diagnostic tool that we have available to us isn't lab tests, MRIs, CT scans, orthopedic tests, um, functional movement tests. The most powerful diagnostic tool that we have available to us is the patient themselves, is their experience of their symptoms. So what healthcare currently does not do, and this is all healthcare schools internationally in the United States as well, no healthcare school, none, zero, teaches people to accurately interpret the language of the body is what I call it. So when your patient comes in and says, yeah, my left knee hurts when I go upstairs, but not downstairs. We have a few guesses about what that might mean. We actually don't know just based on what the patient has told us with any um, uh, accuracy. So we rely on all these other expensive modalities or um, uh, orthopedic tests to generate further guesswork. It's much like if you were to go to a foreign country and you don't speak the language there and you want to get to the library, 
if you don't speak the language, there's road signs that tell you every way um, exactly how to get there, library this way. But if you don't speak the language, those road signs, where they're telling you to go is completely meaningless. So then you guess, well, maybe the library is this way. Maybe the library is that way. And by accident, you might eventually end up at the library. Um, but that is the most inefficient way to get where you're going. And again, all patients present to a practitioner, not because they feel great, but because they have an issue that they, or a sensation, a pain experience that they don't want to be having anymore. They want to go from point A to point B. And the fastest way to get there is to understand what the body is telling you. And that's the gaping chasm. That's the huge difference in what symptom evolution does is it teaches our practitioners to actually understand what your patient's telling you with incredible accuracy. I'm interested when you talk about your education, um, now kind of what you're doing now, I guess, let's not be around the bush revolutionizing the way that healthcare is done and practiced would you say that your medical degree is worth it you know i had this thought the other day um so uh for example in the area where i practice a person could you know post high school which is our, our secondary or final education. Um, most people graduate when they're 17, 18 and either enter the workforce or go to vocational school or pursue what we call higher education here. And after high school, a person can theoretically get a massage license in nine months. They earn pretty close to what I do. And it took me seven years. So while that, while that caused a little bit of gall on my part, I'm like, hey, wait a second here. Um, hour for hour, you know, dollar for dollar, we're pretty close in terms of what we charge regionally. You know, you can go to other places geographically in the United States and someone in my field might charge a bit more. They might charge a little bit less, maybe perhaps a rural area. But um, I thought that exact same question, would I recommend pursuing higher education? For me personally, it's only through um, the roundabout way. Like I didn't start off on day one in the higher education um, field that I pursued, thinking to myself, I'm gonna reinvent healthcare as we know it. What ended up happening is I was really disappointed with the outcomes that I was getting from the information that was given to me in school. And so I just got really curious. The emperor has no clothes. I was getting about an 86% success rate, which is pretty good, but I knew it could be better. I knew it could be better. So that's when I started asking more questions and um, doing a lot more research, essentially almost unlearning some of the stuff that I learned. I will say I could not be where I am without having had that foundational. Like if I had only gone to massage school, I don't believe it was possible for me to get the foundational information. However, I will say anyone, anywhere, no matter what your field, if you become in love with learning, and curious and curious about your field so much more if you value learning far more than you um, are afraid of failure or looking stupid or getting it wrong whatever your field you will discover amazing things because necessity is the mother of invention i didn't have a tool that i needed so i made one you mentioned your success rate percentage there, um, kind of going the traditional route, which was 86%. Just out of interest, what's your uh, success rate? If you could kind of attribute a number to it, what would it be now? 99.9. 
and Fair not enough. because my work actually fixes, you know, it, and because I'm the person to get the person, uh, I am the practitioner to see that person to their desired finish line or their case resolution. I refer out to my other very talented colleagues all the time. I refer out for drugs, surgery, um, you know, durable medical goods. I refer out to dietitians, physical therapists all the time. We all have a role. So it's not so much about what can I do for the patient when the person's um, lock, so to speak, what's actually causing their symptoms is a key that I have. Great. We're going to see that patient. I My care is going to see that patient to the finish line. It's not about getting more and more tools. It's more about what is needed. Everything does something. Cortisone does something. Stretching does something. Exercises do something. It's about what's needed. And sometimes my care is not what's needed. And being honest, um, that's probably the greatest um, failing that we have, I would say, in all fields, healthcare, pharmaceutical industry, um, roofers, plumbers, I mean, all fields, is acknowledging where our limitations are. Like, I'm a plumber, I don't do roofing. Because when a plumber tries to do roofing, I'm going to guess that person's going to have a pretty, the, the customer's going to have a pretty poor product at the end of the day. So um, being able to be, uh, in, acknowledge where our uh, uh, sphere of influence begins and ends. And then again, what does my patient need? Not what do I need? What does my bank account need? What does my patient need? I'm really, really fascinated by kind of your discoveries and, and, and this story, I guess. I mean, you're putting yourself out there with what you discovered, putting yourself on podcasts such as mine. Mm-hmm. If the success rate of, of your practices are so high, why aren't they more widespread? Simply because I am not selling fingernail clippers. Everyone knows what fingernail clippers are. There might be a few different brands. Some might work better than others, but people know what fingernail clippers are and what they're for. What I have to offer, essentially the intellectual property or the technique system that I'm bringing to market or bringing into the world is um, untested and it is perceived as as abstract or hypothetical, perhaps. Um, It is also true, proof is in the pudding. Um, So the more empiric data that I gather, the more sort of tested that this is out in the world, um, that makes all the difference in the world to essentially developing the appetite. So my product, people have to rethink what is even possible. It's, uh, it's like if no one knew how gravity worked and I came on the scene, I'm like, no, you guys, this is how it works. And they're like, I don't know about that. Right. So I'm, I've developed or sort of harnessed, tapped into, um, the inviolable laws of the body that the current healthcare field. And again, not just in the United States worldwide, does not does not currently understand it just because you don't understand it doesn't mean that that's not how it works it's simply untested to according to the perspectives of of uh, what we'll say my market which is current practitioners students so on and so forth people that are in the field i mean so when you thought and you kind of came up with came up with this and you thought to yourself right how am i going to bring this to market what were your next steps there? I guess in kind of building a business around what you discovered. Mm-hmm. So it really started with, um, you know, like all, um, we'll say inventors or creatives um, is R&D, right? When I knew after hundreds and hundreds of patient um, uh, outcomes that I was really on to something, well, the next level test was kind of a beta test, essentially, is I had to figure out 
can I actually teach someone else to do what I do? And can they get the same results? And the answer was also yes. So not only was I onto something, but it is what reproducible. And so in the field, uh, one of the research metrics that exists in um, uh, healthcare, it's called inter-observer reliability. And what that means is, can all of my students you know, do interview a patient, put their hands on a patient and arrive at the same conclusions, apply the same techniques and get the same results? The answer is yes. Another research metric, it's called number needed to treat. So for example, out of, you know, hundred patients with knee pain, how many of those patients do we have to give 800 milligrams of ibuprofen before we expect to see a positive outcome, a statistically significant positive outcome? And the misnomer uh, if you go look up the definition of like NNT, that's the abbreviation of number needed to treat, it categorically says there's no way to know at the outset of care if the patient is going to be one that responds positively to that 800 milligrams of ibuprofen or not at all or negatively. And I'm here to tell you, based on the predictive value of, again, the history taking methodology that I've developed, I can tell you right away if this patient, this knee case patient is going to respond well to ibuprofen, cortisone injection, physical therapy, nerve flossing, uh, acupuncture, or perhaps need some counseling, right? And so that's really where we've missed the boat is presuming that just because we see something on a film, a meniscus tear, a disc herniation, that's called the pathoanatomic model, that that must be what's causing this person's symptom. And that isn't so. And again, that's borne out by the inconsistent results that we get in our healthcare system. And that alone accounts for the ginormous drag on GDP. The number one drag on GDP in the United States, low back pain. That's insane. <laughs> right? Wow. That's crazy. Just days of work, you know, right? It affects parents. It affects employees. It affects employers. And it's just simply because we don't really know what's causing someone's symptoms and therefore we can't treat them effectively. We guess. That's crazy. That's, yeah, that's kind of, that's really interesting. And that's kind of one of those things that you'd never really expect. Um, now, another thing I'm interested by, um, so how, how are you monetizing this this discovery, I guess, let's call it? How are you kind of making money or earning a living? We spoke about earning a living earlier. Um, I guess, what's your products and service offering when it comes to um, symptom evolution? Yeah, so um, my minimum viable product or like my core offering is um, two, uh, two level courses. There's an online course um, and it's uh, all pre-recorded lectures, etc. It can be done by anyone anywhere. And then my second level course is for, um, so like uh, uh, orthopedists or medical doctors, um, primary care physicians, they would stop at the first level course. And that's just teaching the very specific um, history taking methodology that I developed for folks that are in the manual medicine field, meaning they actually do hands-on work or soft tissue work with their patients um, or their clients, then they would progress if they so chose to the uh, manual therapy portion of the course, which is about 80 hours in person. And when I travel and teach, uh, that format's a little bit different than when I teach here um, at home. Um, but the monetization component, so there's the the IP online and in person, but then there's also um, uh, 
there's a few, what we'll say, durable medical equipment, right? There's also products that I had designed. I have a, you know some specialty soft tissue tools that I use that for the manual therapists who take my class, they can buy those. And then I also have a, a mastermind subscription because my um, students, they all figure out really quickly what to do in the first three treatments. They get into the weeds in the fourth and the fifth treatment, or, you know, as they progress a patient, um, they don't really know how to explain when somebody's comes back and says, my hands are so itchy. I can't sleep. I was here for ankle pain. So that's, that's where the um, subscription comes into play. Uh, and that was also really, uh, as we, for all entrepreneurs, and again, I don't care what your stripe is, um, uh, for all of us, it gets really tricky. You know, the pricing, the value, um, monetization, while it is what keeps my lights on and it's about that energy exchange, um, it's also about making it not uh, such a, a prohibitively, it's not making it not so prohibitively expensive that it becomes inaccessible to the majority, right? So we're doing, we're doing that dance. I've got some long-term goals in that regard as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you discuss pricing and value, one of the biggest problems that I had as an entrepreneur was thinking to myself, so I spent a year, uh, actually no, not a year, about eight months building up my platform and building up uh -huh. my podcast where it uh -huh. is now. And when I first started monetizing it, I didn't know what the value was. So when, let's talk about sponsorship of the podcast for an example. I mean, a brand comes to me and says, we'd like to sponsor your podcast how much would you like to, uh, how, how much do you charge? So the first, the first time I charged next to nothing. And then I, then it, pro it took me about a month through a process called scaffolding to realize mm -hmm. where my value lay. So essentially every time I had a new person come to me asking to come on the show or a brand asking to um, sponsor the podcast, mm -hmm. I basically told them 10% um, more than the person previously. Then when I got to the okay. point where I got, yeah, when I got more no's than yeses, then I realized okay. I'd reached my, I'd reached my limit. But I think lots of entrepreneurs have this same issue. I mean, what is my value? How did you go about figuring out what your value was in the first place? Great question. Super great question. So obviously for my beta testers, um, this is a, was a essentially like a, uh, I was like workshopping something in um, the research and development. Um, and I will give credit where credit's due. Um, the platform was called uh, Namastream. Um, Sandy and Jenny, and I'm forgetting what their names are, but they have a fabulous, it's called a beta launch lab. Um, and essentially they walk you through how to do, um, to not only monetize your product from right off the get-go, but also be sure before you go all in and bring your product to market, that you're developing a product that people actually want, right? And so um, with the value, uh, again, same thing, we're, we're just talking about supply and demand, right? So especially because I'm bringing an, un, you know, what the world perceives to be an untested, hypothetical, abstract product to market, my go-tos um, in how I demonstrate value, like I have a contract right now with a local police department, and the purpose of that is to have a year's worth of empirical data to say, okay, I was on salary um, and it cost the department this much, but compared to the years past, me being on salary for a year saved them 
this much based on workers' comp claim, PTO, so on and so forth. So without getting into a bunch of like efficacy and, um, uh, you know, nitty gritty healthcare style research, what have you, having that um, in the wings or, or bringing that to market will obviously have much more of a, a quantitative way for demonstrable value or what have you, the efficacy, essentially a tangential uh, way to demonstrate efficacy. Um, but the way that I determined, um, was because I do still maintain a private practice. So as I'm making, you know, essentially my side hustle become my main hustle. Um, I, it had to be worth at least as much of what I was already getting in with active patient care. And so that was kind of my beginning metric. So how much do I charge for an in-person manual therapy thing? How much do I charge when I travel versus when I'm here? All of those things are on a little bit of a different like schedule or what have you. Um, but again, it's really, about um, the value of what I have to offer is unparalleled because in my in the United States, I don't know how it is in the UK, just for example, in my field, only 10% of Americans would consider seeking care from a chiropractor. Again, I'm not really, um, that is my field, but that's not what I offer. I have many, 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 many patients that travel from Canada, Florida, um, way outside my geographic area. So I have just opened up, am I after 10% of a market share? Uh-uh. I'm after one, not only 100% of the market share in the United States, but also in a global reach as well, right? So I've already had some international clients come in, so on and so forth. And that um, value uh, based on the learning or the product that I have to offer really ups the ante in terms of um, what we'll say perceived value. And we've talked about, um, you know, on the whole, being compared to traditional uh, healthcare, I guess, being relatively untested, although mm-hmm. you've had a very, very high success rate. Mm-hmm. How do you get people to trust your product or trust you and the services you provide? So again, as compared to somebody's marketing fingernail clippers, right? You just need some jazzy ad campaign because people know what they're getting or they, they, they know what this thing is supposed to be doing or accomplishing. For me, the way that I do it currently um, is, so I call them learning pods. So when I um, am div- uh, cultivating a learning pod, I always go out and do a demonstration first. And Because what that entails is I'll have the um, interested uh, practitioners, and again, I teach many different stripes of practitioners, I'll have them give me what I call their treatment failures. It's the people where no one could figure out what they were doing, multiple failed surgeries, they keep coming back in for the same thing, Um, whatever their issue is, the uh, interventions that have been tried thus far are not moving the needle. Those are my people. So I have them line up perhaps maybe two or three and almost wordless, wordlessly, I'll work on that. Um, I'll travel to the location and I'll work on the, the treatment failure or the difficult cases that they bring me. And it takes me maybe about two hours. And when the patient gets off the table and says that their hip pain that's been there for 20 years is now gone, I have lots of students sign up for my course. And again, that's that's the most powerful way to do it currently because while I'm waiting for the empirical data, again, from you know the police department project that I've started, while I'm waiting for all these other things to come in, um, seeing is believing the way that I do it now um, because the results speak for themselves. Um, this is not snake oil. It works or it doesn't. And I really don't care if somebody understands or believes what I do because when you get off the table and you feel 100% different, I don't need to say anything the work speaks for itself when you talk about your students i want to put this into perspective slightly so my marketing strategy for my podcast i think is very unique to me 
and what I'm offering as a podcast. Now, however, if I sold a course on how to market a podcast based mm-hmm. on what I've learned, I don't know if it would work for other people trying to market their podcast because the way I go about it is very unique to me, my show and my offering. Now, I'm wondering if it's the same for your students. So when you give them access to this education or this discovery, are their success rates practicing your discovery the same as your success rates? Mm -hmm. And it gets better over time. I do have a question for you, though, because I'm curious for just your decision making. How did you decide to do what you currently do? I know that you're describing, I don't need to know all the nuts and bolts about why the way you market your podcast is so unique. And so you're not sure that there could be, you know, a crossover, you know, that that if you were, again, to design your own course of how to market a podcast. Um, so in my field, we call that the wizard effect, meaning if nobody can reproduce what I do, that is a crap product, Right. <laughs> very quickly your your the buzz is going to die off because no one else can get the same results and so just in your decision making how did you decide to do what you did why did you decide to do what you do yeah so in terms of marketing the product um i thought me as a host i think i thought i needed to have a really really strong personal brand hence why i then spent ages reading about copy that i could be putting on linkedin building a personal Mm -hmm. brand on linkedin however not everybody has um, the ability to take a small aspect of their day and turn it into a LinkedIn post and generate interactions. No, I don't think that's applicable to everybody. Got it. Uh, so you're talking about people having a personal relationship with you, not with your body of work. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can, so, you know, I can really, I can really understand that. So I'm probably um, the opposite um, in terms of uh, do my students get the same, um, the same, what we'll say, uh, value out of what I do. Yes, they do. Because again, the results are very reproducible, but one step further by design, this course, um, the, the learning, um, the, the discoveries that I've made, um, it's what we call autodidactic, meaning self-taught. So because I did, I, in the work that I developed, I discovered I, in terms of pattern recognition, I figured out that in the body, A plus B equals C, well, then it follows C plus D equals E. And I mean, shoot, it goes all the way to F. So if I give my students, they go no further than just take my, you know, preliminary course, a level one course online, theoretically, given enough time and cases that have walked in the door, they too will arrive at Z just like I have. It's not something that requires necessarily, depending on the student or their, their sort of um, level of curiosity and willing to test things out. Um, because again, the um, principles that uh, the whole work is founded on are inviolable, while previously unknown, are inviolable laws of the body. So I can say, for example, to my patient, when they come in complaining of F, I already know that they have A, B, C, D, and E in order to get F and we have to go back out the same way that we came in. So it seems abstract and completely random. um, The questions that I ask or why I do what I do, but I can knowledgeably, predictably and reliably tell the patients as can my students. Okay, Mr. So-and-so after session today, I know you came in for left knee pain. Your right hip is going to hurt tomorrow, eh, probably for a day or so. This is going to go up to your neck and it's going to feel like you've been working out, but you haven't, you're going to get a headache that you haven't had before. And they'll come back and they'll say, everything that you said has happened. 
how did you know? And again, my students, because again, it's not based on, um, it's not interpretive. It is very mechanical. And so the, the uh, value to the student um, is, I'm going to say it's invaluable, but that's probably my biases. Yeah. <laughs> I'm interested because you've described, I guess, having rather an abstract product or service offering. Um, from like an entrepreneurship perspective, has that mm-hmm. caused any challenges? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so when you've invented something that uh, doesn't exist, nobody understands possibly what the heck you're talking about, so on and so forth. Um, the way that um, I market my business right now and what we'll say the uh, opportunities, I don't have any radio ads right? I'm going to get nowhere right there. Um, it's uh, just like for you, it's really important to identify your target market, your, you know, your demographics. I mean, quintessential client to a T. Like I know what Netflix shows they watch. I know what age they are. I know, um, you know, what their, their uh, favorite brands that they follow, so on and so forth. Um, uh, but the way that I talk to them in the now without all the empirical data I'm going to need and that I'm developing getting in the future, how I market now is different than I'm, how I'm marketing um, in the future, right? So, you know, in terms of uh, planning, so on and so forth, um, my uh, entrepreneurial strategies are very much in evolution because it's based on, again, I'm not selling fingernail clippers, right? So I'm not just going to stay in one avenue. I have a, this is the best thing for me right now. This is the best thing for me tomorrow. This is the best. And those are based on sort of like um, the uh, thresholds that we see in terms of, you know, the social, the social activity, um, the uh, website activity that I get, the course enrollments that I get, so on and so forth. So it's really dynamic. And again, I, just like you, I probably couldn't uh, make a course on like, this is how to market your business because the product that I offer is is not like anything else. Um, so when there's just a totally new um, element, you have to get really creative and also be very nimble and responsive as I'm, we're finding. One of probably the most interesting thing you said there was figuring out your target market group mm-hmm. and your, your ideal consumers. Now mm-hmm. I'm exactly the same, um, you know, in terms of my primary, secondary and tertiary consumers and the oh, exact yeah. niche that I want to target with my podcast, I'm on point and I know exactly who those people are. Now, I know how I figured them out, but I'm just interested how you figured them out. Um, So again, uh, that was kind of determined during my beta launch lab. Um, So I actually called like dozens and dozens of practitioners and I just asked asked them. I didn't tell them anything I was doing. Um, I asked them, oh, hey, so-and-so, you know, a physical therapist, let's say. Um, Hey, so-and-so, it's me, Anne. Um, You got a couple minutes? And then I would just go through like a list of questions, essentially trying to identify their pain points, like, um, you know, like their, their struggles with their least favorite parts of practice or things that they wish could be better, right? I was looking, I was essentially listening for like, what are your biggest complaints, you know, as a consumer, right? Like what do you, what tool do you not have that you wish existed kind of thing, right? So I crafted my product around that. And um, what came out of that was insanely valuable demographics. So for example, if somebody has been in practice for more than five years, they already think that they know everything, and they're not going to listen to anything that I have to say. 
right? So my target market has been in practice for maybe three to five years. They have already figured out that whatever they, they were taught in school um, wasn't yielding the results that they felt uh, uh their clients or their, uh, their patients deserved. And so they've already sought other streams of knowledge. They've already taken advanced coursework over here, over here. They've really, they've really branched out in the tools that they employ. Um, and then uh, in addition, they have to have a really curious mindset and their internal source of motivation, you know, again, going back to like, why do humans do what we do? And it's often not based on lack of knowledge that uh, makes us uh, not make a good decision for ourselves. There's a really strong sort of, what we'll say personality traits or even like an emotional motivator. And that's really what made the difference in for me, for me with my business targeting, um, being really, really clear about my demographics or my target market um, because it's niche within niche within niche, if that makes sense. And it's not based so much on, you know, the metrics that we can get from social or um, any other consumer like data points. It is the art of uh, data analyses and seeing through um, what seems like disparate, unrelated data points to be able to zoom in and like, because this person like this and this, but not that, that's my person. When you talked about decision-making, I, I kind of want to explore that a bit more. Um, now, I've read a lot of stuff and done a lot of research about decision-making. Um, I read a fantastic book called Decisive, which I've spoken about before in the podcast, which kind mm -hmm. of talks about things like if you're presented with an A and a B, there's probably a C you can take. Um, and also, in terms of entrepreneurship, decision-making is really, really important. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, you can really define a good leader about uh, by how well they, you know, they make decisions, whether they mm -hmm. choose action versus inaction. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering on a personal level how you go about decision making. Um, that is a fabulous question, because if you have a heartbeat, if you are a homo sapien, um, this is something that we have that we experience day in and day out and not just in a professional way, but in a personal way too. And so the analogy that I like to make, because it's really insightful because it affects us all, it affects how much you earn. It affects whether you go to jail or not. It affects whether you have um, healthy, upbuilding, satisfying relationships in your personal world. It affects whether you have healthy, satisfying, upbuilding um, uh, work experiences, right? It affects your bank account. It's amazing. There's no area of our lives that it doesn't affect. And so especially as entrepreneurs, I, um, as with my the work that I've developed, better results in less time. And the fastest way from A to B is to really understand how homo sapiens make decisions. And it's not with this. It's not a mental game alone. There's more to it than that. So if you think about um, your whole life, your whole being being like a box, right? It's not true that your physical fitness is an isolated box, separate box over here, and that your you know girlfriend box is over here, and your relationship with your parents is over here, and then your business is over here. It's actually one box. And so, for example, if you have some difficulties in your relationship with your parents, you likely also have some difficulties in your workout routine, in your business, so on and so forth. And oftentimes, we're totally blinded to what actually makes decisions. So exhibit A smokers. Every person who smokes cigarettes knows that it's a bad idea for their health, but they do it anyway. So I'm not here to denigrate or, or uh, uh, lessen anyone who uh, chooses to smoke. I have, I'm not disparaging you guys at all, but it simply means we don't make decisions based on knowledge. 
alone, right? There's more to it than that. So what else comes into our decision-making abilities? And this has to do um, with uh, where our source of motivation is, like what actually motivates us, what makes a difference, whether you're a leader or an employee of of, in an organization, what um, uh, actually causes us to either take action or stay inactive? Where does that actually come from? And this has to do with essentially the stories that we're told and continue to tell ourselves. It's these unconscious belief systems, whether we know that they're there or not. Um, And this is uh, the greatest analogy is probably malware. We've all had a laptop or a desktop where unbeknownst to us, there's these little programs running in the background. And if you get enough of those things, it eats up so much bandwidth, your internet connection slows to a crawl. Your, in, your, your computer can no longer move forward, take another step forward because it's so bogged down by all these other things eating up the bandwidth essentially. And that's a lot of um, in our mental and emotional bodies, if you want to call them that, um, in our mental and emotional uh, states, Uh, without knowing it, we've probably been installed with a bunch of malware. And what that causes for us is a lot of, we'll just say stuckness and a really great way to kind of sort this out in your own life, just as a practice, give this a go at the end of your day, write down at least one scenario during your day, just a one sentence thing where you wanted something to be different where you were uncomfortable. Maybe somebody's talking to you and they're like really boring you and you want them to go away or you just want to like leave the room because somebody's acting out and it's making the room really tense or you're really frustrated in traffic because you're going to be late. All of those things, you wish something was different. You wish that person wasn't there. You wish that the traffic was moving better. Write down just one sentence and you'll find there's probably a lot more circumstances. So if we have discomfort during our day or we want something to be different, that is evidence, not that something has gone wrong, but that there might be a little malware program running in the background. And those things, um, being vigilant for those things in our day-to-day lives really expedite the decision-making. So then when you're like, well, which business coach do I choose? You know, which sponsorship do I accept? When you're making these, um, you know, what you think just seem to be really black and white logical business decisions, um, how do you determine which sponsorship sponsorship to accept? How do you determine which, you know, next business book to read? How do you pick your coach? If you are all filled up with malware, you might unwittingly pick the wrong coach for the wrong reasons, not pick any coach because you're afraid of failure, all these things. So like when we look at our whole lives as one box, that there's no difference between the past, the future, and today, all of those things um, weigh into how we as humans actually make decisions. And it is a huge, huge value to us as entrepreneurs to get real get real with ourselves and figure out what's actually driving us. And then we can, once we see it, like, I don't actually believe that. And decision-making not only becomes a lot easier, faster, but in our own best interest. You talk about discomfort and issues. And I think that almost leads me to think about mistakes. Now, as an entrepreneur, I've made lots of mistakes, which I've documented along my entrepreneurship journey. However, I'm just interested from your perspective, because I think our journeys are probably couldn't be more different um, with regards to entrepreneurship. Um, Kind of when you realize that the way that the medical uh, system was working was wrong, we weren't treating patients good enough and, 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 you know, our success rate wasn't high enough and you weren't happy with it. What was the biggest mistake you made from kind of 
getting that realization and turning it into a business? Mm, how many mistakes do you want to go through? <laughs> so we'll, we'll trade. I'll do one mistake and then you do one mistake. <laughs> it can okay, be really brief. It doesn't, I, 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 we don't need to expose any skeletons in the closet though. Um, uh, I would say in the beginning, my greatest mistake was to presume that the person in front of me, the opportunity in front of me was the way. This is it. I know it. This guy is going to connect me with the NFL and then I'm going to be on top of the world. When in reality, that person just needed care like anyone else. They didn't, right? And so instead of um, uh, thinking that I knew the way that things were going to work out, instead of just keeping the grander vision in view and letting the road turn and listening to like just taking the next right step, right? There's no wrong steps. There's only steps. And so that huge shift on like looking right in front of me to instead you know, I'm not looking at the, the, the next dot in the road, you know, that makes the center median or what have you, I'm looking at my destination. Right. And so it's that allowance. That was probably my biggest mistake. Like the chasing your tail. Did it. What about you? Well, um, my one would have been a lack of patience. Um, so it would have really? been very, early on. yeah. Um, it's interesting. So I, I, when I started my podcasts, one of the first things I did was I thought, right, I'm going to create a website. This is going to allow sponsors and potential guests to contact me easier. It's going to, when people look up business podcasts, I'm going to be one of the first things which comes up. It's going to drive traffic to my podcast and also potentially be in, um, a, a way for me to capture leads, to drive revenue through the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, now one thing I didn't do is I didn't optimize it for mobile. So I purely designed it for a computer. And I thought, oh. nobody's going to look at it anyway. Yeah, I know. Uh, I thought, nobody's going to look at this anyway. I can just optimize it for mobile later on. I looked at it on mobile. It looked terrible. Um, and then I published it and I, you know, my, my podcast gained a lot of traction. Uh, and I saw lots and lots of hits on my website, all of which were through mobile. And I knew that I'd missed out on so many great leads and probably put off lots of listeners from listening to my podcast in the first place because it looked a bit shoddy on a mobile. It looked great on a laptop, but on a mobile, it looked terrible. Um, so my probably that, that it, it's not my biggest mistake. It's just a mistake. And I think it would have been mm-hmm. a lack of patience to put out a website, which wasn't fully ready um, just mm-hmm. out of because I wanted to show my mates and go, look, I've got a website now um, yeah. rather than making sure I did it properly. So to reframe, um, I just think the word mistake should be deleted out of the the uh, the dictionary personally, um, because there's really no such thing. Did you learn something equals? It wasn't a mistake. That was an opportunity. Right. And again, that goes back to, you know, what really motivates us as humans, what motivates me. I am so curious. What does that do? Like, I'm really just a scientist. Right. And if we have that, you know, uh, learning mindset, there's no such thing as a mistake. Now, if you completely ignore all the road signs that are saying, no, this isn't working or what have you, then it stops being an experiment or a learning opportunity. And again, that alone is indicative. There's some malware in there, right? And get curious about that. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, So I think the next thing, I mean, this is going to be for the listeners who listen regularly. 
Um, this is probably going to be a topic which you're going to yawn about, but we're going to do it a bit differently. So we always talk about LinkedIn and lots of the entrepreneurs who come on the show talk about how great LinkedIn is for mm. driving leads and traffic to a website and things like mm. that and getting engagement. However, when we had our discussion a couple of weeks ago about potential topics, you said that you don't ever want to use LinkedIn or you don't use LinkedIn because it doesn't allow you to have a personal connection with your target market group. I thought that was really interesting. You specifically said it's impossible. I think I'm quoting you because I wrote down the quote here. I can't have a personal connection with more than with 200,000 people, for example. And that's really interesting. So in terms of how you're, if you're not using LinkedIn, how are you attracting clients in your target market group, which we talk about how to identify them earlier? Um, mm-hmm. How are you, how are you attracting, you know, uh, people and, and consumers into your business um, without that- LinkedIn? Yep. That's a great, that's a great question. So, um, because, um, some, you can use a social platform like LinkedIn for just about anything, right? Um, the way that, um, because of the nature, we'll say the abstract nature of the product that I have to bring to market, um, it is more a relationship with the work. And I'll just use the word tome, um, the long format body of work um, that I am generating that builds authority ship, right? Because th- that is what makes the difference in what we'll call conversion. When somebody gets curious about my product, shows up at my website, what makes the difference between somebody who's just like, you know, pokes around and then leaves versus somebody who pokes around and hits buy on the product, right? And that has to do with, again, I'm not selling fingernail clippers. So they have to come to understand what am I selling? What is it for? What is it going to do for me? What is it based on? How does this work? And so there's far more, um, what we'll say, uh, detail oriented that cannot be delivered in um, just a post on LinkedIn, uh, you know, a, a 60 second teaser video on TikTok or any of the other social platforms. So it's not the personal relationship with me and like, like the epiphany I had drinking coffee one day. It's not about me. It has to do so much more with what we'll say the trust, the uh, veracity, the reliability of um, the product that I have to offer that not only are they going to try it out, but in advance, they know um, what it's going to do for them and their practice in terms of their, what we'll say, ticket sales or volumes and the joy and satisfaction that they get out of it. Because again, what really motivates us as human beings is more emotional, right? Is this going to give me more joy in my life? Is this fingernail clipper going to give me more joy or this one, right? And same thing. I'm still, you know, we're still in customer service essentially. Um, But the way that I communicate, yes, this will give you more joy in your life. And this is why simply cannot be built with um, a a litany or a a long, uh, even, you know, three years of regular posting on uh, LinkedIn, so on and so forth. The social platforms that I employ is really just to have some eye candy, get some thought provoking insight, and then again, drive them to the more longer format things that really build the authority ship, the explanations, um, and the reliability of essentially what the world now perceives to be an untested product. Yeah, I think, again, when you talk about untested, this is a question which I'm, I'm really interested in your answer to. Um, and I, I, we haven't discussed this as a potential question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Sure. People who doubt what you've thought of or what you've kind of discovered and what you've found out, what do you tell them? 
So, you know, it has to do with the the person who uh, is inspiring the, the, the doubt, you know, we'll say just say naysayers or what have you. Am I talking to a lay person or am I talking to a potential, what we'll say, customer, which is a um, healthcare practitioner or a student who's in the health, a student in the healthcare field? Um, it ha- my answer would be really tailored to whom I was speaking. But I realized really quickly um, in the beginning, I thought, well, shoot, do I just go to the National Institutes of Health, which is a really big a driver of uh, research here in the United States? Do I just apply for a grant and do a giant research study? And the in that thought experiment, the conclusion I arrived at was that even if I had a ginormous amount of empiric data to say symptom evolution is extremely efficacious or, or is effective to treat this, 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 and this, everyone would still be like, what the hell is symptom evolution? I've never even heard of this, right? So I couldn't develop my work in, in I couldn't focus on um, uh, having a bunch of empiric data alone because people still don't understand what it is. So I went, I chose to go the other way with what, we, what I'll call market-driven forces. So at the end of the day, I am relying for time to speak for itself because patients are not stupid. For example, in the physical therapy field, healthcare, or, or sorry, health insurance companies, um, I gathered this data point. This is from the American Physical Therapy Association. Insurance companies green light about 24 to 30 visits, like authorize, okay, this person has knee pain. We'll give you 24 to 30 physical therapy visits to help you get this fixed. And most patients only make it through six. And it is not because after six visits, their knee pain is resolved. It is because they're not seeing results fast enough. They don't see the value in taking time out of their day, even though it might be small or, you know, a copay or what have you, they do not see the value in in the product that they're getting or in the service rendering that they're getting. And therefore they self terminate care. This phenomenon exists across all of healthcare in its current format is lack of perceived value with the services that we render. So for example, if I could fix something or this work, this methodology fixes something forever in two to four visits, why in God's name would you go and see somebody six times to- or 16 times and either have, you know, so-so results and the problem comes back? Um, so I'm relying on market-driven forces essentially on a longer-term basis. I'm relying on time speaking for the work that I do um, because there will come a point, a tipping point when there's essentially just a groundswell, um, both practitioners and patients, customers that... Um, advocate like why isn't this taught in schools why isn't this taught in schools because again the work speaks for itself and it is so unparalleled it's almost unbelievable so it's not just like you know oh this massage therapist works for me but this massage therapist worked for that it's not this subjective thing it's it's a very black and white quantitative um, experience both for the practitioner and the patient. And so as I'm developing, you know, the more, what we'll say, the clinical data, the empiric data that we're looking for to support what I'm talking about, um, it was a decision that I made early on, like, you know, which which basket do I put my eggs in? What what area of, of you know, market uh, uh sector development do I pursue? And that was that was the determination that I came for, is that I really need both. And how I gather both of those is quite different. Now, I want to move the conversation on slightly to a slightly different topic. This is kind of from your mental aspect, I guess. Um, now, I mean, whenever somebody, um, you know, creates something new, is disruptive in whatever market they're trying to penetrate, it can often be quite nerve-wracking. 
Now, I'm just interested from a personal perspective, moving against the status quo, being disruptive and kind of going against mm-hmm. what's being taught what in the widespread healthcare system. Was that nervous for you? Were you kind of scared to put yourself out there? Um, no, not at all. I can't wait to be in a, what, what they call a theater setting where they've got 40 or 50 doctors, you know, you see it in movies all the time, right? Where they've got 40 or 50 doctors all sitting in chairs, you know, kind of in concentric circles, right? What have you. And then some, you know, operation or procedures being rendered to a patient, you know, down on the ground floor, what have you. And that has to do with, I guess, um, just the, the immutability, the undeniability of what I do. And again, going back to what motivates us as human beings, nothing makes me happier than to give people their lives back, um, to keep people out of surgery, to have moms and dads be able to pick up their kids again. They can go back to work and be able to uh, support their family because now they're able to perform their job duties without pain. Um, And that in and of itself, um, I can't not. With every fiber in my being, I am so not afraid to go toe to toe um, with any, you know, naysayers or as we go forward, you know, investors, so on and so forth. Um, and again, that really has to do with a very unique, like I'm not selling snake oil. There's no buy-in required for um, this work. In terms of the industry disrupting, all it does is makes everyone better. Because again, going back to the research metric that we talked about, NNT, I'm not putting anyone out of business. I'm actually in this work increases their business because now when the practitioner who recommends somebody to go get a cortisone shot, because they know upfront using the history taking methodology, this person already in advance before they even get the cortisone shot, they know this patient versus another patient with what seems to be the same complaint is now going to get a hundred percent relief or a huge amount of relief versus like, I don't know, let's give this a try. Now, we're selling more cortisone. <laughs> we're selling right. We're sell- we're selling more, you know, surgical procedures. Um, but it's not based on guesswork. It's based on what the patient actually needs. So they have an insanely positive customer service experience, right? They go to a practitioner and say, "I want help with this," and the practitioner says. Sure. And it gets that person to their desired finish line. They get the results that they're looking for. They see the value in whatever intervention was recommended. And again, I'm not saying all other interventions besides soft tissue work need to go off the map. That's the opposite of what I'm saying. So in terms of industry disruption, it's just about how we make decisions and how we recommend which, essentially, which arm of of healthcare to utilize, which product do I recommend to this customer, to this patient? And the, the patient now has an incredibly positive, predictably positive, and consistent, uh, consistently positive uh, experience. And so do the practitioners. Now they're being as effective and they have as much satisfaction they really wanted from their uh, career as when they started, right? They're having the experience that they want to have. The the customer, the patient is now having the experience they want to have. So yes, it's industry disrupting, but probably not for the reasons that you're thinking. And and I'm interested. I mean, you know, when I think about famous people who've made medical medical discoveries, I think of like Mary Curie and people like that who are written Mm -hmm. into the history books. Um, You know, everybody knows that name and... Um, there are schools named after them, hospitals named after them, things like that. From your perspective, are you interested by, you know, if, if what you're talking about is more, if, if what you've, you've kind of found out becomes more widespread, are you interested on a personal perspective of like being written into the history books, um, you know, having a level of, I guess, fame about what you've discovered? 
Um, well, that has crossed my mind many times. That is nowhere on the map in terms of my motivation. Um, I can't not. Uh, it would be a shame. It would be shameful to me as a human being to not do my absolute best with with every dying breath in my, while there is breath in my body. This is what I am brought here to do. I know this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And again, um, it has to do because I've already had all the market or the research and development that I need to to prove it day in and day out. I have so many patients ask me, how come no one else knows this? I've, I've seen so many people for this problem and no one else fixed it. I don't understand. Why is this not known? Why? And that alone, like I get that, I get that little boost every day. Um, it has crossed my mind, um, again, to bring this work or the um, discovery that I brought uh, to not just the rest of the United States, but to uh, both developed and undeveloped nations. That's a big part of where um, this work is going. I have a 5013C in mind um, and where we provide scholarships. So where there's currently, um, you know, like no healthcare, you know, somewhere in a rural area in a foreign country um, where there may be no healthcare for maybe a 200 mile radius, we give two people uh, scholarships. They learn the work uh, for free. And now they have promising, lucrative and satisfying careers. But in addition, everyone in their community now has access to not just some healthcare, but unparalleled healthcare. And then I think my, my final question, I guess, what's the future? I mean, what are the next steps? So, you know, with that long-term goal in mind, um, just like what you were saying, I think uh, when we shared our mistakes, you know, our, our tete-a-tete, um, uh, your mistake, you know, that you characterize as a mistake and, and my mistake, we're both rooted in, in patience, right? I'm, you're so excited, even though your field is so far off of what I'm doing. Um, we can share hearts in that we really not just believe in what we do, but we know we have the data. We see it on a day in and day out basis that um, the product, while very different, you and I, the product that we provide uh, is not just uh, interesting or you know a great thought experiment, but provides insane value both to your listeners, your guests, so on and so forth. Um, and so that alone. Um, with, you know, looking forward with how I'm going, with how I know that this can go. Um, from the very beginning, I built into the DNA of this work, one, that it is autodidactic so that there's not a reliance. Um, it's not the wizard effect that um, people that take my coursework, they don't have to keep taking my coursework in order to stay up to date. Otherwise, they, they you know, um, uh, plateau out on the um, results that they get, the money that they earn, you know, how far out of state do patients come to see them, so on and so forth. Um, it's, it is up to all of us to, you know, take what we have and, and sort of like run with it, like what you're describing in the product that you offer. It's really up to, you know, your listeners. It's up to your guests to use the, what you have to offer to the fullest. And so, um, what I see for my product moving on in the future, I see this being the standard in the industry. I see this being taught in schools. I see scholarship opportunities, um, both uh, uh, at home and abroad, um, and a better quality of life for the consumer, the patient, and the practitioner. Awesome. Well, this has been probably one of the most interesting conversations I've had as part of my podcasting journey. Um, somebody who's kind of, you know, going against... Uh, going up against you know the the medical system as we know it uh, to get their product out there 
Um, it's kind of a story that we've never really covered before, but I'm very, very glad we've had this conversation. I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. This has been really fun, Sam. You're a really interesting person, and I, I really love the podcast. <laughs> You've done a fabulous, you have a great product. How about that? <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Enterprising Gen Z podcast. If you want to find out a little bit more about the agency, the link to my LinkedIn is in the show notes. Um, so make sure to, to, to click on that and connect with me and we can have a chat. But yeah, thank you so much. And I'll see you next week with another episode. All the best. Goodbye.